tribes of Israel, the nation that we'll call the nation of Israel tonight, had long since backslidden and had taken the pagan gods of their neighbors and had very quickly succumbed to idolatry. And Judah is on the verge of all of this. And now the question in Isaiah's mind is, would the next king be faithful to Jehovah or would he promptly lead the nation in following idols as Israel had done? prophet prayed in the temple trying to find clarity in the midst of uncertainty and it's at this moment that something wonderful occurs. Isaiah sees a vision of God himself in heaven. I've mentioned it a couple of times. I believe about two weeks ago I talked about the throne of heaven. Talked about how only five men in the entirety of scripture saw the throne of God. Isaiah is one of those men. He sees the throne of God. He sees the heavenly host. And, and it's such as if the heavens are, are the top of the tabernacle. Or the top of the temple is opened. And now he stands at the foot of the throne. The throne of God sits above him. The, 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 the garment or the robe, the mighty royal train of God fills the entirety of the temple. The building itself even shakes under the glory and the majesty of the Almighty. Above the throne, Isaiah sees what we refer to as seraphim. They are a type of angel. We don't have time to go into angelic order or anything like that. Just know that they are a type of angel. They, they are angelic beings of the highest order. And they worship God. And they magnify God. And they simply cried this simple refrain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. It's an interesting statement. The angelic beings that Isaiah sees around the throne are proclaiming that the God of heaven, the one who sits upon the throne, is above all else holy. It is an interesting use of Jewish literature and poetic license. You see, when you see something done doubled or repeated or especially done in triplicate, what the author is trying to purvey to the reader is that what you are reading is of incredible importance. That's why when Jesus says in John 3, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you must be born again, and then repeats himself and says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you must except a man be born of water and of spirit, he shall not enter into the kingdom of God. He is repeating almost verbatim. He's trying to get Nicodemus to understand the importance of what he's saying. So when you read this in Isaiah 6, that the angels cry, Holy, 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 what you are understanding here is that above all else, God is extremely holy. Now I believe without any doubt in my mind that you've got to have two or three witnesses. The Bible says, 2 Corinthians 10, if you need a, a passage of Scripture, the Old Testament was filled with this idea that the, uh, without the two or three witnesses, no word could be established. So instead of just looking at one passage of Scripture, allow me to take you to another passage of Scripture. One that records an incident that would take place 800 years after Isaiah's incredible vision. The Apostle John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos where as the last living apostle he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ. We call it the book of Revelation. It's not about end time prophecy as much as it is about the revelation of who Jesus really is. Read it differently now. When you read about the mark of the beast and all those things, you need to understand, yes, it's the telltale signs of the end time, but reality, it, 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 I hope we get this. This is powerful. 
we got to understand that when we read the book of Revelation, we are reading a revelation of the identity of Jesus Christ. And when we understand that, every mark, every trial, every tribulation, the beast, all the imagery that we see, it doesn't have to be scary because it reveals the coming of the Messiah. Bring it on, devil. Jesus is coming back. Well, glory. I'm getting out of my notes. I'm getting excited. We better settle down. It's Wednesday night, right? John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's receiving the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's commanded to write what he sees. And in Revelation chapter 4, we see that he sees a vision of heaven. The last one to record the throne room of what he sees in the throne room of God. And guess what John records? He sees angelic beings surrounded in the throne of God. And their, their description's a little weird. It's a, they're like beasts standing around the throne. And while their song is a little bit different, the first three words are the same as Isaiah 6. As they sing around the throne, holy, holy, holy. Of all the attributes of God that the angelic beings could declare to be preeminent, it is interesting to note that holiness is the first choice. The indication is clear. The focus of heaven is the God of heaven. And that God is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, holy. He is holy before He is love. He is holy before He is power. He is holy before He is creator. He is holy before He is savior. Of all the things that heaven could exalt God for being, holiness His divine holiness is what takes center stage. And everything about God is absolutely holy. His word is holy. Heaven is holy. His angels are holy. His spirit is holy. God is holy. A quick search of your Bible will find that the Bible uses the words holy and holiness 654 times in the King James Version. 50 books out of 66 books use the term at least one time. As Christians, we use the term in a variety of ways. We talk about holiness, and in Pentecost especially, we claim to be descendants of what was termed the holiness movement. But the question must be asked, what does holiness really mean? What exactly is this idea of holiness? Well, I'm not that smart, so I start with the obvious. I go to Webster. I know he's not God-ordained or divinely spoken through, but Webster's a pretty smart guy, so I'm going to start with him. And Webster defines the word holy as exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. If you look at the etymology of the word or the study, the, 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 the word itself, you'll find that the word holy is closely related to the word whole or W-H-O-L-E, meaning complete or perfect. In other words, holiness, simply put, is the fact holiness is simply wholeness, completion, perfection. 
The Old Testament uses the Hebrew word kadas along with four derivatives when speaking of holiness. This word and its derivatives are found 843 times. They're translated a variety of ways including holy, holiness, hallowed, consecrated, and dedicated. And the root word kadas, the root word that we translate holy in the King James Version simply means to be pure or clean. The first time the word is ever used in scripture is found in Exodus chapter 3. It's an interesting moment. For many of you Bible scholars, you immediately perked up when I gave you the reference because you understand what takes place in Exodus 3. Moses has spent the last 40 years in the, in the desert. He is watching his father-in-law Jethro's sheep. And now he had 80 years of age, the holy God of Israel speaks to him out of the midst of a burning bush. No, Moses, he sees the spectacle of the bush. He turns aside, wants to see what exactly is going on because while this bush is on fire, it is not consumed. And so as he approaches the bush to see what exactly is going on, the voice of Almighty God speaks to him from the midst of the bush and commands him to remove his shoes. It's a very interesting command. But God quickly gives the reason because Moses, the place whereon thou standest, is holy ground. Moses, you got to understand when you stepped away from the flock and you left the backside of the desert for a moment to approach the bush, what you are doing is you are stepping into the presence of a holy God and you cannot come with the stink and the mud and the nastiness of your commonality and your carnality, you've got to make a change and approach me uh, and understand that I am perfect, pure, and clean. I am holy. So change yourself. You are in my presence. Dr. David Bernard also serves as our general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church International Wrote a book many years ago about practical holiness titled Practical Holiness, A Second Look. I highly recommend it if you want a good book on holiness. It will discuss a lot of things and give you a lot of good practical understanding of holiness. Okay, You can get it at PPH online. But he defined in his book holiness as an essential attribute of God's nature. With respect to him, it means absolute purity and moral perfection. You see, when we say the word holy or holiness, I want you to understand that holiness begins with a revelation that the God you and I serve is absolutely perfect. Now that's very important because, and I promise you we're going to get on standards, but I need you to understand the foundation first. Holiness is more than a dress code, a guardrail, a standard of Christian living, or church protocol. It is all of that, but it's more. Holiness is entirely about who and what God really is. We got to get that. Holiness is who God is. It's the essential attribute of His nature. It is entirely the makeup and the composition, the expression of who of God's essence. It's everything that He is in existence. Now let's go to the Word of the Lord. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 through 45 says this, I am the Lord your God. 
Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. If you keep studying Leviticus, you'll find Leviticus 19 and 2. And Leviticus 20 and 26. And Leviticus 21 and verse 8 speak of the Lord declaring himself to be holy. Perfect, pure, complete. Joshua 24, 19 says this, And Joshua said unto the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for He is an holy God. He is a jealous God, and He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. Now I'm taking that a little bit. I didn't give all the context to that, but understand the premise of what I'm trying to say here is that the God we serve, the God Israel served, could not be taken lightly and just entertained any way. He is holy, He is jealous, and He will not tolerate sin. 1 Samuel 2 and 2, the Bible says this, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. If you keep studying scripture, you'll find that there are 51 references made about God being the Holy One. The Bible refers to the holy name of God 19 times. In Psalm 22 and verse 3, the Bible says this, Thou art holy, O thou, that inhabits the praises of Israel. I want to stop here for a moment. When we get the understanding and the revelation of the holiness of God, it will affect our church services. See, when we come to church, it's not just clapping our hands, lifting our hands, singing a few songs, hoping we're all on key, uh, maybe jumping a little bit, running around, and, and doing all the expressions of worship that you and I are so, uh, so familiar with in Pentecost. You see, when we worship Him, we are building a house. He inhabits the praises of His people. That's the verse I just quoted to you. But you've got to understand, the holiness of God will inhabit the house. So when I come to church, when I come to church and I begin to magnify God, I have to be very careful that my own spirit's right. That's why Paul said to Timothy, he said, I will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. See, we come to church and we can get so comfortable in living for God and just lift our hands and go through the motions and we can defile our worship. Because our hands may or may not be holy. I'm not talking about washing your hands in the physical. I'm talking spiritual right now. God help us. It's hard, to, it's hard to build God, the Holy One, a house out of our praise when our hands have been doing things that we shouldn't be. It's hard to sing praises from lips that said things that aren't holy. It's hard to meditate on a holy God when our mind has been filled with other things. See, I'm talking to you about holiness. I know, I know what we call that in Pentecost. I'm talking about holiness right now. God is calling a people to be set aside and holy unto Him. Psalm 99 and verse 5 says this, Exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at His 
footstool, for he is holy. Psalm 145 verse 17 says this, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Isaiah 43 and 15 says this, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 says this, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. Revelation 15 and 4 says this, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are manifest. You see, the God you and I serve is holy. The God you and I serve is wonderful. The God you and I serve is powerful. But He is holy above all. It is interesting to note, church, that the God you and I serve revealed Himself to Abraham. I'm sorry, revealed Himself to Moses. And in Exodus chapter 3, after telling him, take off your shoes for the ground whereon you stand is holy ground, he looks at Moses and he declares to him some things. One of the things that he shows Moses is his name. It is the first mention of the redemptive name of God. The tetragrammaton as the, 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 the Jews would come to call it. I am that I am. It literally translates I will be what I will be. If you break it all down. And I don't have a whole lot of time here. But if you break it all down. It literally Yahweh or Jehovah literally means the self-sufficient one. That means... That by his name, he is complete and perfect in and of himself. That's why God could speak the word in Genesis 1 and create something out of nothing. He needed no help. That's why when God saved humanity, he didn't send a son. He robed himself in flesh. Y'all not hear me. Because he's the self-sufficient one. He didn't need anybody else. See how it's all intermingled? That's why when it comes time for him to come back, he's not sending somebody else to come back for a church. He's going to come back riding on a horse. He doesn't need anybody else. He's the self-sufficient one. He is holy. Now, y'all ready for this? I've just described to you how holy and perfect he is. But I want to flip the tables a little bit. Because if I go back to Isaiah chapter 6. And all the glory and all the splendor and all the majesty that Isaiah 6 records. There's something there that has intrigued me. Isaiah sees the majesty of God. He hears the angels crying holy. He hears the sound of the building shake. He sees the pillars begin to shake at the presence of Almighty God. <laughs> to be honest though, what he does wows me. In the midst of the majesty and the power and the holiness of God, he looks around and feels a little dirty. Don't you think about that? It's not that God's holiness was dirty. In fact, 
Isaiah recognized very quickly the holiness of God was everything but dirty. It was pure, clean, radiant, beautiful. It was everything that he could possibly describe it to be. It was perfection, but yet the feeling was still there in Isaiah. The dirtiness, the nastiness. And the man of God, the prophet that is watching the heavens roll back and seeing the glory in the throne room of God, is finally exposed for what he really is, a sinner. Now, I'm not talking about, there's some rank characters in your Bible. There's some guys in your Bible that if we were putting them on a list of America's most wanted, they would, it'd be easy to fill a spot. And Isaiah would not be in the top ten of those. But yet Isaiah stands in the holiness of God and it seems as if he's been completely exposed. In the light of God's holiness, Isaiah looks at himself and says this. New Living Translation records it this way. It's all over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Now guys... We are so blessed to experience the presence of God in our lives. We come into the house of God and those, that goosebump, those goosebumps that you feel aren't just coincidence. That's the presence of God. You, you're, you are, your body is physically responding to the presence of God. Okay, We feel God. And yet when Isaiah is in the presence of God, instead of wanting to do a, a, do a shout and a dance and run around the church, Isaiah looks at the awesomeness of God and says, I don't deserve to be here. Isaiah is going to pick up the pen. In fact, he's going to record a lot of great things about the glory of God. He's going to pick up the pen and he's going to write about a coming Messiah. He's going to write Isaiah 53 about a, 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 about a suffering Savior, a suffering Messiah. It's going to blow your mind. I'm telling you, he's going to have a lot of great things. But at one point, he's going to write in, Psalm, in Isaiah 64 and 6, We are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Isaiah, wait a minute. You've prophesied of things that nobody can even imagine yet. You've seen things that no one can even comprehend. And yet you talk like a man who is a rankest and lowest of sinners. How can it be? It's simple. He compared himself not to his brother and not to his neighbor. But he compared himself to the awesome holiness of Almighty God. And recognized, I'm nothing. In the presence of God. Now please don't go away from here. Thinking that I think all humans are worthless. Please don't go home and say. Well my God pastor. He, my Lord. He, he, he just told us how nasty and how dirty. And how worthless we all are. That's not what I'm saying. In fact I believe the opposite's true. Biblically the Bible says. Deuteronomy 32 and 10. How that we are the. Our Israel is the apple. Of God's eye. Isaiah 62 and 3 speaks of Israel, God's chosen people being the crown of glory and a royal diadem in the hand of God. The apostle Peter picks up the pen in 1 Peter 2 and 9 and calls the church a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people. I could go on and on. I want you to understand we are absolutely priceless and precious in God's sight. There is no doubt about it. The word of God is filled with the idea that you and I are of immense value to the creator. But I need us to understand that humanity by its nature is extremely sinful and unholy.
Since Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden, we have dealt with what theologians call our Adamic nature. We have allowed the flesh to be in control. And Romans 5.12 tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Every individual, everybody say, that's me. Every individual in this world is a sinner, including pastor. Think of the greatest man or woman in your life. Think of the greatest Christian you know. And I'm going to tell you right now, even that person is a sinner. Whether you want to believe it or not, you and I both, all, every single one of us are sinful. And if not careful, our flesh will take over and our carnality will take over and we will do what we want to do. And I'm not comparing us to the church down the road. I'm comparing us to the holiness of God. Before I give you... Too much grief. Let me give you a little bit of uh, a little bit of Bible. Psalm fifty-one and five says this: "Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me." Jeremiah seventeen and nine says this: "The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it?" Oh, I know their intentions and I know their motives. No, you don't. There's no way you can because our hearts are deceitful. I'll go so far as to tell us that if we're not careful, our own hearts will deceive us. The, the biggest liar in your life uh, pumps uh, in your chest uh, that seed of emotion, that identity that you think, oh, everything's all right. No, if you're not careful, my friend, that heart beating in your chest uh, will lead you astray. Uh, it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Psalm 14 and 3 says this, They are all going to sigh. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned. Everybody say all. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You read the book of Romans and I promise you, you'll, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Paul speaks of man's sinful nature at length uh, and he tells us that all of us uh, have the capacity and the inclination to sin. Read, read the first three chapters of, Ro of Romans and you'll find out what I'm saying is true. He goes so far as to argue that the compulsion to sin is a battle that must be fought even after we've obtained salvation. Romans chapter 7 speaks at length about sin reigning in his body even when he desired to live holy. And the whole premise of his writing is that we never completely lose the sinful nature. Remember the lesson I taught a few weeks ago about two, two natures? Now you understand why I'm teaching it? Because there are, there are, we, we have a battle raging in us. Yes, we've got the Holy Ghost. Yes, we've been bought with a price. Yes, we've experienced grace. But if we allow the carnal nature to grow, that's why the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, simulations, wrath, stripes, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Those, those manifestations are the works of the flesh. <laughs> you can be full of the Holy Ghost and manifest the works of the flesh. Well, glory. It's true. It's true. You don't need to be, you don't, you don't need to have a devil. You don't need to have a devil. Just stop praying. Flesh will take care of it. You can pay your tithes and still be carnal as as can be. 
you can be the first one here every service and still miss heaven. Just because the works of the flesh are manifest. You see, with 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 if we're not careful, the work the flesh, the this Adamic nature will grow in us. And and you gotta understand, you gotta understand that as much as we want to talk about living holy and being holy, we can never be holy on our own. You really want to get a glimpse of your position with God, read Ezekiel 16. And I don't have time to go into it all. But Ezekiel 16, God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel and says, Hey, let me tell you about a little, a, a little city, a little nation that, that I'll just call Jerusalem. And, and, and I saw it was like Jerusalem was like a child that had been born and then cast into the field. Go read Ezekiel 16. It is a, and I won't go into it, but it is a graphic representation of an, a baby who has been given, who has given, uh, the mom has given birth to and Literally, as the baby is born, she cast her into the field. Bloody, nasty. Go read Ezekiel 16. And the Bible says that God comes by and sees that baby and takes her unto himself and loves her and cherishes her and gives her a second chance. You see, we oftentimes, especially if we're not careful, and we've been raised around this truth, if we're not careful, we'll think that we come to God with a name and a pedigree and experience, and we're somebody, but we are still, a, we're abandoned in the, the field of this world. And had God not come by when He did, had God not extended mercy when He did, we would not be here tonight, my friend. But God looked at us in His everlasting love and said, I know you were unclean and I know you were imperfect, but because I'm holy, I'll love you in spite of your unholiness. Oh, my friends, this is beautiful. I'm talking about holiness tonight. God is holy. And yes, it is true that we are unholy. But hear me today. The beauty of what I'm talking about right now is that a holy God looks at an unholy people and says, Be ye holy as I am holy. I'm sorry. I get excited about this. I'm sorry, we, we, we too many times, we, and I'm not trying to be ugly here and I'm not trying to be critical, but I'm scared too many times we think all holiness is is a dress code or a platform policy and that's necessary. But when you understand the beauty of holiness... Holiness isn't ugly. Holiness isn't a drudgery. Holiness isn't bondage. My God, holiness is beautiful. Holiness is the hand of God uh, reaching for me uh, and reaching for you uh, saying, I know you're not like me uh, and you can't get yourself out of this, uh, but I'm going to make you like I am. Uh, I'm going to let you become like I am. Uh, Be holy as I am holy. It burns me up when people say things like, well, we live by grace. We don't have to be holy. Really? You don't understand what grace is. Theologians define grace as the unmerited favor of God towards man. (laughs) 
That's exactly what holiness is, my friend. When God looks at, when a holy God looks at an unholy people and says, you don't deserve it and you can't do anything about it, but I'm going to invite you to be like me. That's grace. Grace and holiness are not opposite ends of the theological spectrum. They're not. Holiness and grace walk hand in hand. Grace will introduce you uh, to the concept of pure holiness. See, this is why it's important. This is why it's important. Oh, I'm going to mess somebody up today, and I'm not trying to. Whew. I'm sorry, I get excited because the more I dig it, the more I study, the more I pray about it, the more I realize that there's so much more to holiness. And these jokers that are walking away from holiness, you see, I'm connected to too many people now. And I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, just, I just think that it's an opportunity, not a drudgery, for me to some way, some way, somehow be like him. Says Littlefield, that blows my mind. Because I know Jordan more than I know anybody else in this world. And I know what Jordan faces. And I know the things that Jordan deals with. Things that, that nobody else in the world know about. I know that. And I know that at the end of the day, Jordan is just like Isaiah in the sense that my righteousness, the best I have to offer God, is dirty laundry. But God still looks at me and says, I know, I know you're a stinker. I know you're, be honest, you're an idiot at times. But I want you to be like me anyway. That's why when Paul writes to Titus, this is one of my favorite passages of the Bible, when it, especially when we're talking about grace and holiness. Paul writes to a young preacher named Titus and says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. The unmerited favor of God towards man has appeared to all men. Black, white, rich, poor, educated, not educated. In North America, South America, a hundred years ago today, a hundred years from now, the grace of God hath bring, bringeth salvation, hath appeared to all men, teaching us. That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. I love grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That song still holds and rings true. But you also got to understand that the amazing part of grace is that grace doesn't just introduce us. Grace leads us by the hand and teaches us. This is where you put your right foot. This is where you put your left foot. This is how you talk, and this is how you walk. This is how you live. And you don't have to wait for next year or the year after or for eternity. You live it in this present world. I'm just talking to you about holiness right now. I'm just talking to you about holiness. Here's why you need to understand that grace and holiness are so intertwined. Because either A, you'll think that grace is the only thing 
And holiness is not necessary, which I've already taken care of. I believe I've proved to myself biblically already about that. So we won't go there. But the flip side of that is that if you're not careful, and if I'm not careful, we'll think that because we hold XYZ standard, that we've earned our holiness. Do you hear me? Because the reality is, we've got too many that think because they've lived for God X number of years, or they've done a certain something, or they've experienced a certain phenomenon, that they don't have to be holy, or they don't have to strive for holiness. My friend, holiness is the invitation of God to be like Him. And there is no way under the sun that you and I can be like him just like that. It is a process that we will constantly work on. But I've been in church for 40 years. Good. I hope you're, all, I hope you're holy. But I know you're not. I've been around this all my life. You'd think I'd learned a few things. I've learned one thing. I still got a lot to learn. Oh, yeah. I'm just being honest right now. I look at myself in the mirror every morning. I think, my God, if I get this cat lined out, I'd be I'd have a really good church. Woo, glory. You hearing me? Holiness. Is not an instantaneous moment. That's called. Oh Lord help me. I'm trying not to get too far ahead. That's justification. Sanctification is a process. We'll get into that later. Don't worry. But I need you to understand. That grace extends an invitation to us. To be like him. And that invitation is made. Every single day of your life. And you and I can choose. Whether or not to walk. In holiness with God. Or to walk in our carnal nature. And that's holiness. I thought holiness was standards. Oh, there's standards involved. But if you don't get this, the standards aren't going to make sense. Woo. Well, glory. Are y'all still with me? I'm almost done, I promise. I think I am done. I'm out of my notes, so we're in trouble. Well, glory. I'm trying to get through this without getting you too much. So we've looked at the idea of holiness as moral perfection from God. The fact that He is pure, He is complete, He is holy. We've looked at the fact that you and I are not holy in and of ourselves. And I've got so much more I could talk about and I'm not. But what does holiness truly mean for you and I? When I read this definition about two or three years ago, I'd read the book before. I had to read it to get my license. I was 18 at the time. I had to read the book I don't know how I missed this. But I picked it up again a few years ago. I believe it was in 2020. And I was studying some things and, and digging in some things. And I picked up the book again and read Brother Bernard's book on practical holiness. And he made a definition or set a definition that has bothered me. It's challenged me. It's made me go back to a prayer closet and to an altar and say, God, work on me. Because Brother Bernard said that holiness as it relates to God is moral perfection. But holiness as it relates to men or as to mankind is conformity 
to the character of God. Do you want to know what true holiness is as it relates to us? Conformity to the character of God. Holiness, the summation of holiness for you and I is to be like Him. Let that sink in for a moment. Everything we strive to do is so that someday we can be like Him. Everything. Everything. The way I dress, what I watch, how I interact with people, how I interact with my wife or my husband, how I treat my kids, where I, where I spend my money. Oh, Pastor, I'll let you talk about the way I dress. I ain't going to let you talk about my money. Well, guess what, sweetheart? We're going to talk about it. Because it affects everything. When Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 and talks about be holy in all manner of conversation, we look at that word and, see, and, and think of speech. When that word literally translated means lifestyle. Every act, every part, every aspect of your lifestyle is to be like him. My God, help us. The goal of holiness. And I don't come to you like I'm an expert because I'm not. I see so many flaws and chinks in my armor. It scares me to even hold the microphone. But I'll tell you right now, my job, my goal is to somehow get me and my family and the church that God has entrusted me with uh, to some way, somehow to begin to conform more and more and more and more into the character of God. Uh, I don't care. I don't care how much money we make. I don't care how big a house we all have. I don't care. That's that's secondary compared to this one thought. I must be like Jesus. And so like Paul, I say this, be ye followers of me as I am of Christ. Why? Because I'm trying to be like him. And so I'm going to invite you to come with me on a journey. Will it be perfect? No. Will pastor make mistakes? You better believe it. Will you make mistakes? Probably. But you know what? The goal is not to stop with every mistake. But the, the goal uh, is to go back, go fall back into the arms of grace. And say, God, I'm trying to be holy. So let me go back to the classroom and teach me how to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. And how to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Would you stand with me all over this building? Come on, if there's somebody here that has a hunger for holiness. I'm I'm not talking about just standards right now. I'm talking about a hunger to be conformed to the character of God. Would you lift your hands for a moment? Uh, Would you call unto the Lord right now? God, I'm asking that you would help us. Uh, I'm asking that you would take us as a congregation, as individuals, as families, uh, to conform into the character of God. Uh, God, help us to be more like you. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the grace that you've given us. Uh, I thank you, Lord, for filling us with your spirit uh, and allowing us to be baptized 
baptized in your name. But God, I'm asking you now, Lord, to lead us and guide us. God, teach us how to live in this present world. Teach us how to please you. Teach us, oh God, how to serve you. How to be faithful to you in this present world. Oh Lord, help us today. We want to be holy as you are holy. We want to cling to your righteousness. We want to hunger and thirst after righteousness, God. For we know we shall be filled. Help us, O Lord, to be holy. Help us to be holy as you are holy.